VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, November the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with Fonce when you pick up the phone and give us a call to get in the queue. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So here we are asleep after the clocks fell back. It doesn't really annoy me one way or the other, the old switches for daylight savings time. But for some, it's a big deal, especially parents of young children. I know that that was a long-running problem when my boys were small. But it's also it comes to the point for so many people, the seasonal affective disorder is very, very real. So to talk about it this morning, Dr. Janine Hubbard is going to come on around 9.30 to talk about seasonal affective disorder, what to look out for, what you might be able to do about it. And here we are, heading to a high of 17 degrees today. Man. All right, congratulations to the lads. Team Guzhu, Team Canada, they won the inaugural Pan-Continental Championship on Sunday. When I went to flick it on, I forgot about it. It was the uh, shot stone, pardon me, the, the last rock in the fifth end. The Koreans had it. And with the hammer, they racked on the guards. And, of course, Guzhu took three to go up 10-1, eventually wins 11-3. So that's pretty cool. Now, we did throw a trick shot in the eighth end. I don't know if the Koreans appreciated it or not, but the Guzhu rink, Team Canada, Another big victory. Not missing a beat with uh, Brett Gallant moved off to Alberta. Of course, he's a replacement, E.J. Herndon, terrific player. So, of course, Jeff Walker, Herndon, Nichols, and Brad Guzhu. Champs. All right, there's a World Cup qualifier. No doubt they'd get through. Do you remember Canadian boxer Donny Lalonde? He's from Kitchener. Donny Golden Boy Lalonde. He was a Canadian champion. He was actually the WBC light heavyweight champion of the world in 87 88. Climbing the ranks very, very quickly, and finally got his shot at one of the most notable, most famous boxers of all time, Sugar Ray Leonard, today in 1988, got knocked out. I remember Lalonde very, very clearly, but he had his big title shot today against uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and didn't wind up very good. Also another day that I won't forget is today in 1991 that Los Angeles Laker great Magic Johnson announced that he had the HIV virus and was retiring from the Lakers. I remember that news conference. A couple of quick hockey notes before we get going. Big congratulations to the members of the Mount Pearl Blades Minor Hockey Association, whether it be the players, their staff, volunteers, coaches. They spent the entire day fundraising over the weekend and raised $13,000 on Saturday. $13,000 for food banks in Mount Pearl. So as the members of the executive rightfully point out, You know, minor hockey, minor sports is not just about the sport or the activity. It's also understanding what a bit of teamwork means. It means being part of the community. So bravo to the Mount Pearl Minor Hockey Association and their fundraising efforts on Saturday. Over the weekend, Alex Ovechkin, the great eight, scored his 787th goal for the Washington Capitals. That means he scored more goals with one team than any other player in history, Eclipson Howe. And Sidney Crosby, two of the greatest players of a generation. Crosby had recorded his 900th assist over the weekend, the sixth fastest player to reach that milestone. And last sports note promise. Remember when I told you about a swimmer from Mount Pearl, member of the Marlins, named Chris Weeks? He swam the fastest 50-meter butterfly in Canadian history. It's not an official record because 50-meter butterfly is not an Olympic discipline. But here's where the story gets even more intriguing. When compared at the exact same age group between the ages of 15 and 17, his time of 23 se- 23 seconds at 23.91 seconds, pardon me, is faster 
than the great Michael Phelps, American swimmer. Phelps, 28-time Olympic medalist. He's got 23 gold medals. His fastest time at that age in the 50-meter butterfly, 24.1. So weeks faster than Phelps. That is really some heady company to be in. So, wow, good for him. Well, they are fast. You know what's not fast? Nalcor, Muskrat Falls. So today there will be the second Auditor General's report tabled in the House of Assembly. Of course, the Auditor General is Denise Hanrahan. The first report came out about a month ago. All sorts of major concerns coming from it uh, about handling public money, the embedded contractors, conflict of interest amongst members of the organization. So here comes the second report today. We'll see what's inside it. But the big question remains. It's fine and it's really important work that the AG does. Of course it is. But what will the outcomes be? What will the consequences be? What should happen? What could happen? Because more often than not, we get the reports, there's a minute of outrage, and then it goes away. You know, I know Gilbert Bennett was relieved of his duties last week, but these reports are just so monumentally important and impactful on the people of the province, the big question does remain, what happens as a result? Where are the consequences? Because in the past, there haven't been any. So we'll see what's in it. And, of course, the bloody project is cursed, right? So there are persistent problems at Soldier's Pond with the synchronous condensers. Okay, it's the switchyard. It converts the high-voltage DC current from Labrador, which up to 900 megawatts was the plan, and converts it to AC and integrates it into the island's power grid. So they've got a bearing problem in one and vibrations in another. It has tripped them many times and they tried to test it. The hydro itself has restricted the flow of power up to 315 megawatts across the Labrador Island link. And the company responsible for these synchronous condensers, another GE outfit. So GE is the company behind the software problem on the Labrador Island link, and GE Power is the contractor behind these synchronous condensers. So they've got some big tests coming up. There is one schedule to see if they can manage 675 megawatts for November 21st, but won't be able to until there's a design review and what that means if there's going to be a rebuild or some engineering tweaks that will be conducted and or replacement we just don't know but on and on and on it goes and of course the issue regarding GE and GE power very likely will land in the courts to see what happens at this moment in time but here's another comment coming from uh, Hydro CEO Jennifer Williams who I do think has done a good job in trying to get some controls in place at uh, Hydro she says the the root cause of the condenser trips is close to being concluded. We've heard close many, many times regarding Muskrat Falls, whether it be at the powerhouse, the link, and or the transmission lines, and or Soldiers, uh, soldiers Pond. But there you go. So we'll see what becomes of it. Moving on. There looks like there may have been a sighting of a very fairly rare North Atlantic right whale off a Cape race. It may be the one that swam past Cape Spear on the 2nd of this month. It's, it's of note for a couple of reasons. Now, Dr. Jack Lawson, who's the go-to authority on these types of matters, he says that it still remains very rare, even though it might be becoming a bit more of a pattern. So it's not just for the majesty of the whale itself and some breaching or hopping around. It's what the implications are for the fishery. So we know that we've been lumped in, even though there's been zero entanglements of right whales and fishing gear in this province. Zero. But... We've had fishing gear that might ha indeed be 
put forward that the harvesters have to use this quick-release gear. It also has brought to bear an American conservation group putting a warning label on our product of snow crab and lobster because of the right whale, even though, to uh, say it again, zero entanglements. So that's why it's important of, or it's of no, because it has a direct impact on the fishing gear and some of the warning labels that are not justified but apparently are in play. We want to take it on. Let's go. And sticking with the water, so the two-day seal summit begins today in the city of St. John's. And the location, who knows? They won't tell us where the meetings are taking place. You know, seal predation obviously plays a role in the recovery of the cod stocks. We know it to be true. And just like the Auditor General's report at Nalcor, the big question will be, what happens on the heels of this? They'll talk about all kinds of stuff, product development, market innovation, but until people are willing to buy the seals and the various products, and we should start with the Omega oils because they're in vogue, but until people are willing and wanting to buy more seal, consequently people willing and wanting to go out and harvest more seals, we don't even take the entirety of the quota these days anyway. So really what is this an effort to do? What are we trying to achieve here? I know that more science apparently has to be done regarding the seal population off our coast, but then what? Because unless the answer is there's going to be markets opened up, is there ever, 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 or is the conversation simply over? Or is there ever going to be political will for a call for call's sake to try to bring back so much, some uh, better semblance of a balance in the ecosystem? I don't know, but the seal summit is here. It's long been a boogaboo in the, in the sides of the harvesters in this province. And yes, absolutely, the population has exploded. It's somewhere in the excess between 7 and 8 million seals off the coast. And yes, we know what they eat. But so the seal summit seems and feels like an exercise in futility, but it's happening. And over the weekend, not only the clocks fall back, but people took another real serious shot at the pumps. This time, diesel up 27 cents. 27 cents. So uh, yet another interruption formula application by the uh, folks at the PUB. So it doesn't impact everyone in the province. There's still a seasonal price freeze in uh, parts of Labrador. But the price now is huge. $2.67 on the Avalon Peninsula. And it fluctuates, but not very much around the rest of the province. Apparently, the PUB says the adjustment is because of a shortage of the ultra-low sulfur kerosene which is part of blending into the, uh, the winter blend to prevent, prevent thickening and freezing in the cold conditions. All right, so this particular kerosene makes up 75% of the benchmark price for the winter blend of diesel and 100% of the benchmark price for stove oil in Labrador. So 27 cents, and the implications of that obviously are varied and wide. But on that front, you know, the, the price of food, I'm going to talk about food forever. The price of food spiked by over 11% in September, at the highest and quickest rates in 41 years. We all know it. We all feel it. A story I read this morning is pretty much on point. It's not just about food insecurity as a category, but what does it mean for Canadians' overall health? I mean, and that is the big question. What does it mean for Canadians' overall health? Some 30% of Canadians say that they are buying the cheapest product period, 20% of Canadians that were surveyed say they're skipping meals simply so they can pay other bills. So when we have the amount of chronic illness already in this country, and certainly in this province, what does this mean for our overall health? What would be the long-term impact of these sky-high food prices? 
Food bank visits, nearly 1.5 million visits in March. That's up 15% over the same time last year and 35% more than in March 2019, of course, prior to the pandemic. So there's going to be parliamentary probe into grocery store profits. What constitutes a fair profit? I'll leave that up to you to chime in on this particular program. But here they go. Stats Canada report on Friday, more than one in three Canadians over 15 live in households that are finding it difficult to cover necessary expenses, including transportation, housing, food, clothing, and other costs. That's up from just one in five in October of 2020. So things are getting, well, they're already there. We are at the eye of the perfect storm here with all the contributing factors of inflation and cost of living and the price of fuels and homes and all the rent. So... Food and Canadians' overall health is going to be a big part of the conversation. And there's lots of concerns regarding health out there, too. And look, I know most of you probably don't want to hear about it, but the impact of COVID is still in the community in big numbers. And what that's going to mean in the short, medium, and long term, if you read for whoever you determine to be an expert, whoever you find to be a trustworthy voice on this front, the consensus is pretty clear that it's out there and, you know, some will say, well, this is always going to be the messaging, right? We get into the fall and the winter, just an excuse to bring back some potential mandates, whether it be masks or otherwise, or lockdowns, even though lockdown has been a really abused term. But anyway, it's out there. One lady who consistently sends me emails about absentee rates in her child's classroom and some of her family friends, what they're seeing, she says on Friday it was about 50% absent in her child's class, and that was in grade 6. So I'll leave the school out, but anyway... And on that front, you know, the provinces are demanding more and more in the way of federal health care transfer dollars. Now, the federal government has to do a better job in leadership, no matter how we slice it here, whether it be removing some of the barriers or being a leader so that we can come to terms without having to battle province versus province versus territory for health care professionals and the differences in licensing and accreditation across the country. But here's some of the numbers considering the Canada health transfer. In the 2020-2021 fiscal year, the transfer was more than $42 billion. Over the summer, just prior to the budget, so in March, the government announced another $2 billion in a one-time top-up. No new monies, any real measurable monies in the April budget. But it's not doing enough to cover some of the obvious concerns. You know, we shouldn't be arguing about exactly how much, but how and where we spend it. So, and that's even comments coming from the Canadian Medical Association themselves and their president, Dr. Alika Lafontaine. So whether we talk about the pandemic has seen a real explosion in mental health concerns and in addictions, we have to have a careful review like we will in this province regarding long-term care and personal care homes. But yes, the federal government has to play more of a leadership role in every single facet of healthcare. I know that they're always quick to say it's provincial jurisdiction, but the percentage of federal healthcare transfer dollars is an important part of it. Yes, we have to be careful with how we spend it in every single province, including this province, because if money was the answer, we'd have it figured out by now. But every province, to a man, to a woman, is demanding more and more on that front like they should. We'll see what becomes of it. Uh, a couple of quickies before we get to your calls. So here's a quote coming from the Minister's office regarding Crown Lands. Is that, let's, let me make sure I get the quote properly here. Is that the department has a legal duty to manage and allocate provincial lands in a responsible manner. And this all emanates from a story from a family in Catalina where they had been living in the family home for almost 40 years. One of the parents is in ill health and would like to move into a, an apartment to downsize. And when they go to sell... 
and go through the, the quieting procedures, now they find out that their home has been sitting on crown, lands, crown land. So now they go through the long, arduous process, which is time-consuming and very costly, in the Quieting of Titles Act. Okay, so squatter's rights were abolished back in 1976. And as one of the lawyers, who I will trust his voice on, and he's a smart guy and he knows what he's talking about, they point to the issue regarding squatter's rights. And this is from Jeff Budden. He won't mind me using his name. He used it in public on Twitter today. The article misstated the problem. It isn't that squatter's rights, the adverse possession, has been abolished. It's just that to establish it against the Crown, you have to prove through affidavits and long, uh, pardon me, affidavits of long possession a continuous use back to 1957. That's getting harder and harder as the days roll on. So this issue here I think is bigger than this one story of this poor family in Catalina of the Diamonds. There's a Crown land map on the government's website. And if you have a careful look at it, you will see that there are thousands of people living on Crown land and probably don't know it to this day. You know, land that's been in the family, say, for instance, for generations. And you think it's yours and you may have plans for your future regarding whatever equity you may have in that land and the homes that sit on it. But this, look, there was a review of Crown lands back then, I think it was 2015. And it pointed to this problem in some form. But I think if more and more people have a look at the Crown Lands map, we're going to see that it's a much bigger issue than this one family story. A much bigger issue than the time and the frustration that people have in dealing with Crown Lands. And if the Crown Lands have to be managed with a legal mandate to protect it, let's hope that's also associated with all of the proposals put forward, including World Energy GH2 and all other proposals, which will see wind turbines, potentially, set up on Crown Land. So if we're going to remove common sense, and yes, it's going to have to follow a procedure, I understand that, but if we're going to have that with this one family of diamonds in Catalina, let's hope that that's legal duty to mandate the proper oversight and authority of Crown Lands. Yeah, let's see where that goes. All right, uh, last one. We'll get your calls. How are we doing on the phone there, Fonts? So a good news announcement before we move off to the break. There will indeed be a homegrown gander production of Come From Away. And that's really a smart idea. It's going to be hitting the Gander Arts and Culture Center every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from July the 7th to September the 3rd of next year, the official opening set for July 22nd. It's going to be a real attraction for visitors, and I would imagine many of you who maybe didn't have the opportunity to see Come From Away in the various theaters that are played in around the world, this is a really good idea. So tickets go on sale today. It's going to be a hit. It's absolutely wonderful. And at the helm, at the top of this bill some of the brightest stars in the arts community in this country. Director, Gillian Kiley. Can't be, can't be beat. And the original producer, Michael Rubinoff, he's going to be part of it as well. So come from away, Gander Production, coming to the theater, the Arts and Culture Center. Next year, good, good stuff. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Twitter is wild these days. We're taking your emails. It's openline.vocm.com. But when we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Duran. You're on the air. Hi, how you doing? Doing okay. How you doing? Good. Um, I'm just calling uh, over an article that was printed on the 5th of November uh, with in regards to the clear-cutting that was conducted in Port-of-Port. Um, I just want to point out a couple of 
things that I feel should have been included or may have been missed, um, where the company scientists are correction, where the company says scientists and contractors have been granted access to sites on the Portaport Peninsula over the next six to eight weeks to conduct environmental studies that will include the collection of wind measurements. However, when you look at the Newfoundland Crown's lands map, you will clearly find that the permits 160287 and 160383 have not been approved. Okay. And as such, a stop work order was issued by enforcement. So in essence, in essence the work was illegal. Further to that, um, the company says that any woodcut would be made available to community members for personal use. However, some locals in the area uh, mentioned that vehicles were seen leaving at 2 a.m. in the morning, trucking away the wood, and it was not distributed to people on the peninsula. Um, if that is incorrect, I would like someone to you know, be able to confirm on that. But how, uh, just so I understand the question, how are we to know who these people were and where the wood was being brought to? Exactly. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, that's just something I want to point out. Like the, the GH2 is pointing out that wood will be made available locally. However, the wood, according to sources, left the peninsula. I'm not sure the extent of the clear-cutting and what that means for trees felled and opportunities for locals to access the wood. So are, are you saying or people are telling you that all of the wood that was caught has been trucked out already before the locals had a shot at it? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll have to follow up to see exactly what's going on on the ground. If someone in that region can tell me if every stick is gone or a certain percentage of it is gone without the locals having access, we're happy to follow that up. Oh, yeah. Well, according to, if you see some of the uh, aerial views that were taken by drones, you'll see that there's no wood left in the clear-cut areas. Also, what I would like to point out is that one of the sites is actually within the proposed uh, environmental reserve. And it's hard to believe that construction would be permitted in such an area prior to the environmental survey being completed. Fair point. And it also leads people down the path of before there's been a project release from an environmental assessment, how is there any clear cutting in an effort for World Energy GH2 to be able to access the land and put up the turbines before said release? So, again, this project from the, uh, from the get-go has really felt a lot like cart before the horse. So this is another example, I guess. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. Um and, and I know the, you know, GH2 touts that they really want to interact with communities and, you know, to uh, allay any concerns in that they have. And we have had some interaction. However, on the 25th of October, uh, there was a meeting that was held in Shivskov. And uh, GH2 was invited, as well as the mayor of Cape St. George or her designated representative, to hear concerns from residents. Uh, both GH2 and the mayor of Cape St. George declined to attend. But it, however, it was attended by Mr. Tony Wake Uh So far, uh, there's been little to no substantial responses to questions. And our community leaders seem to be ignoring polls that have been conducted on the peninsula of the 10 communities 
show 84% of residents being against the project. I saw the numbers, uh, and we did indeed give the fact that there was a public meeting, some air here on the program. You know, and I asked the minister directly, how can folks in the area, in the region, ensure that their voices are being heard? Now, there's probably different reasons given from different individuals as to why they don't want the project to proceed. Some of it might be as simple as this, the eyesore that might be a wind turbine in one person's mind or another. So my concerns might be different from people in the region. I just need all the protections in place regarding reverting crown land back to us if when the project goes sideways and things like trying to create a royalty for access to the water and ensuring that there's not any sort of play angle from the other side for involvement with our own grid. You know, there's lots of things, the big picture stuff that I'd be worried about, but if I'm in the region, my concerns are probably different. Yes, um, uh, well, a lot of the concerns from the locals is not just a fact of not wanting the project is the fact that very little information is being provided. And a lot of residents have gotten online themselves and gone to various you know, uh, sites where uh, papers have been prepared by universities and stuff like that that list out the shortcomings of wind energy, the effect on it has on the environment, on people's health, and the fact that these turbines that are designed for offshore use will be used onshore, and there has been no conclusive uh, answers given to this date and the questions that were asked months ago. What's the implication on people's health that you're referring to, uh, Duran? Well, there is there is ones going on uh, when you read about infrasound and uh, uh, infrasonic uh, sound and the effects it has on people. Uh, infrasound works at about the 20 hertz range and lower, and it's not audible to the human ear. However, research has shown that it can cause um, anxiety, depression, uh, various medical issues. There's numerous documents on that, that have been put out on this. And a lot of it is due to the proximity of placing the uh, wind turbines. And other studies have shown that wind turbines of this size and a project of this magnitude, um, even for Finland, uh, they recently put out a, a report where they state that the nearest turbine should be no more than 15 kilometers nearest, you know, to the nearest property. And in this case, I believe the buffer, if, I'm, if I recall correctly, is just one kilometer. It's one kilometer, yes. And even regions like Ontario have uh, researched this. And now, I have, from what I recall, their minimum buffer is two kilometers. And their turbines are a lot smaller. And I, I would like to also point out on something you brought up during your commentary. Um, which was the issue of food and inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people throughout Newfoundland and even on the Port Port Peninsula where I live uh, are, are on a fixed income and c- can ill afford to put decent food on the table, as you yourself so eloquently said a little while ago. Um, the questions I posed um, to certain members of GH2 uh, was, okay, the company's coming in, they have billions to spend. Um, our um, supply chain right now is in shambles as a result of COVID and various other things. And people are hard-pressed to, to define full shelves when they go into stores. And so you look at a mega project that's coming in, a company that has billions to spend, you know, um, so it's going to be competition for fuel, for food, for resources such as building materials and whatnot. And one response I'd received was, well, 
talked to the mayor of Stephenville about that. And another one I got, I'm not going to say it directly, however, the um, response was, well, with the money that the workers will be making, they will not mind paying $40 for an item that would normally cost around $2. (laughs) That's a lot of opining to do with someone else's money. Right, yes. And then, and then that doesn't even address, like I said, the the fact of inflation, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's not going to just affect the local area, because there will be such a demand on resources that you know it'll extend beyond that, right? It makes sense to me, Duran. I appreciate the time. I will do some follow up to see if all of the wood from that. And it's hard to tell exactly, but maybe two or three acres of clear cut that's already taken place where it is. If it was brought somewhere for easier access versus people having to make their way into the clear cut zone. So I don't know, but I'll go and see what I can find out. Okay, I'd appreciate that. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. No problem. You have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. I'm just going to take a break. And as mentioned off the top, there is a very real disorder. Seasonal Affective Disorder. The acronym is SAD. And it impacts maybe 15% of the population, maybe up to 30% of the population, the so-called winter blues. To talk about it on the show right after this break is uh, clinical psychologist Dr. Janine Hubbard. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Dr. Janine Hubbard. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you, too. So I was using uh, seasonal affective disorder. It's been now relabeled as depressive disorder with seasonal pattern. The clinical depression impacts maybe 2.2 to 6% of the population, but the quote-unquote winter blues, much different. Before we even get into the differences... You know, for folks who are not impacted or affected by the time changes or seasonal patterns, what is it? Well, what we know is that there are some people who experience a real shift in their moods kind of right around this time of year as we get more and more dark um, and we have access to less uh, sunlight and then symptoms abruptly improve in the spring. Um, I always describe it as a little bit like that winter hibernation that, let's face it, we all do to a certain extent. Um, You know, there's that we want to sleep more. We just don't feel like we have as much energy. We kind of, you know, maybe decide, well, maybe I don't want to go out and, you know, work out at the gym or do some of the social things. Some people get more irritable or grouchy or they have more trouble concentrating. And one of the big things that we see is a really intense craving for carbohydrates. There's a reason we have all those winter comfort foods. Um, And again, we all experience that to a certain degree. Um, and there are other people for whom winter is really exciting and they get out and they make the most of it and they can't wait for the first snowfall. Um, like I say, for somewhere between 15 to 30 percent of us, you know, we notice the effects, but it's more that we just kind of we have to drag ourselves a little bit more. We have to give ourselves that kind of extra kick in the butt to get things going. But and the whole reason why it was renamed a couple of years ago is we do know that for, as I said, between two to six percent of the population, it's actually a clinical form of depression. And that's not something that we want to ignore. Um, and now is the time that if you're looking back and going, geez, I think that happens to me every year. 
year, now is the time to try to address it. Uh, when it's in the middle of February or March, it's much harder at that point to, uh, you know, try to dig yourself out from it. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly some of it sounds like your hobbies and your habits. For some people, as you say, winter is the season. The skiers, cross-country or alpine, or the skidoers, or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, is it a real thing for children? I remember when my boys were small, the change in the clocks was just more of a nuisance than anything else. Mm-hmm. It took a while to get them back on track with scheduling and what have you. So is the depressive disorder with seasonal pattern I think for children or is that just every time we change behaviors and schedules it is a problem for, for children well I was going to say the time change in and of itself is usually an issue for people for about a week yeah. uh, this time of year yeah not not so much um, especially if kids are getting out of school early enough that you know they're it's, it's more um, actually it's nice because they want to go to bed a little earlier uh, we have more difficulties with the time change in the spring that's the one where people aren't as mentally alert and we have um there's uh studies looking at things like less concentration and focus and more car accidents Mm -hmm. uh but like most of us if you've ever traveled um the difference of an hour usually that piece settles out within about a week for most of us um however it's the what we're seeing is it has something to do with the uh change in exposure to sunlight uh we don't completely understand it but we do know that sunlight helps regulate a couple of the uh neurotransmitters in our brains the ones that help regulate sleep and the ones that help make us feel good so uh serotonin and melatonin um and there's a lot of people out there that are familiar with the idea of taking melatonin to help you sleep mm-hmm. Um, our brains naturally produce melatonin when it gets dark. That's the whole idea is it's signaling the brain that it's time to go to bed. However, if your brain is reacting to the fact that it's pitch black at four in the afternoon, um, that's going to cause a lot more problems because obviously that can then lead to things like some really disrupted sleep. So, you know, how about just taking vitamin D? How about one of those light treatment lights that I, I see many people have out on their kitchen table in the winter months? Well, this is the good news with this is especially in the milder forms, this can actually be uh, treated. Um, vitamin D has been shown to help. I always caution people, check with your pharmacist or your physician just because it's one of those vitamins that can interfere with other medications. Um, so it's just always worth having that quick conversation before starting it. Uh, the light therapy lamps, uh, they're I'll be honest, when I first heard about them, I was pretty skeptical. But we've now got several decades worth of research showing that for some people, listen, it's a low-cost, low-hassle intervention that actually seems to be really successful. I have one. um, It's, you know, about the size of... I don't know, it's a little larger than my phone. And I just put it on in the morning for about 20 minutes while I'm checking my emails and having my cup of tea. And it just gives that little bit of extra exposure and kind of wakes up the brain. Um, Some people find things like there are alarm clocks out there that will very gradually start to increase the amount of light in your room. And it's, again, of a certain frequency. So that if perhaps it's still pitch black outside, your brain is still getting the message of, oh, right, this is when I wake up, and this is how I naturally wake up. Um, And uh, Mother Nature, the biggest uh, treatment of all, is 
If you are someone who is driving to work in the dark and coming home in the dark, if you have any possibility of getting outside at lunchtime on a sunny day, even if it's just perching yourself by a sunny window, uh, any of those kind of things can really help make a difference. So there's medical research on these light treatments because sometimes these feel like, what's the right way to put this? I hear it works, so I want it to work. Consequently, it works for me. Well, there's, listen, there's always a certain amount of placebo effect in any treatment that we offer. Um, But like I say, we do have a couple of decades worth now. Um, I personally find where it's really helpful is in the spring when we hit those several weeks of fog. And so I'm going outside, but there's just absolutely no access to sunlight. Um, And I, I, I personally find that that tends to get me down. And so... Uh, again, using something like a light for 20 minutes a day. Again, it's inexpensive. It doesn't have any side effects. Um, and if some people find it helpful, it's worth trying. If you try it and it doesn't work for you, that's okay too. Maybe look at some of the other options. Um, you know, again, all the lifestyle things. The making sure that while you might be really craving that mac and cheese, um, maybe there's some vegetables on the plate as well. Or even though you want to do nothing more than come home and crawl on the couch and, you know, pull up the blanket and turn on the uh, TV, trying to get out for some exercise, trying to do some of those socializing activities, even though, you know, your brain is kind of going, oh, please don't make me. Yeah, that intense want of carbohydrates really feels a lot like preparing for hibernation. It does. Well, this is, in essence, what it kind of feels like. Um, And the difference is, are you functionally hibernating or is it something where you really and truly are being uh, feeling debilitated so that you really are having difficulty leaving the house, really having difficulty getting and doing all of the daily activities that you need to be doing? And that's always our threshold when we're talking about a clinical disorder is how much is it impacting daily life? And how much of a struggle is it presenting to you? What do we know about how it impacts women versus men? And what's the difference? What, do we understand why it'd be more common for one or the other? <sighs> Again, it's fascinating sort of that we don't fully understand. We do know that it occurs much more often in women. Um, and it tends to occur in kind of women in their 20s to 50s. Um, And again, I mean, there's, you know, you can suppose all kinds of things in terms of how busy that age group is in terms of taking care of kids and households and families and so that they may not be able to be, you know, taking advantage of those lunchtime sun breaks or, I mean, we don't, we don't have good information, but we do know that that's the population that it is most likely to hit. And we also know, this probably isn't surprising, that northern countries, uh, so places like Newfoundland where we already know we have a chronic deficit in vitamin D, we know that we are a group that's at high risk. Well, when you can get a little bit of sunshine in your day, do exactly that. And I wouldn't dare downplay because if somewhere between 2 and 6% is actually clinical depression, then it is not something just to scoff at or mock or, you know, shrug your shoulders at. Because for some, it's very, very real. For others, hopefully there's manageable ways where they can deal with, you know, a quick chat with the pharmacist regarding vitamin D, one of these light treatment uh, outfits, which I see are very, very common amongst my uh, social circles, I have to say. Uh, Always good to have you on. Final word to you, doctor. Uh, Just, as you said, um, 
because so many of us have a mild form of it, we don't want to dismiss those for whom it is much more impairing. Um, and we do know that for some people, a trial of uh, antidepressant medication plus possibly some psychotherapy uh, really is the uh, treatment of choice when it's more severe. So please don't downplay it if you've got a longstanding history and it's something that has really caused you problems in the past. Appreciate the time as usual. Anytime, Patty. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Janine Hubbard, of course, is a... Adolescent and youth psychologists, there's so many things to discuss regarding psychology in this province and the vacancy at Eastern Health and that kind of stuff. We didn't want to go down that path with Dr. Hubbard this morning. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, your turn. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Amanda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How's your weather today? Uh, a little bit grey, socked in by the look of it out across Kemal Road, but not too bad. It's certainly very warm. Oh, yeah. We've got a blanket full of snow in Northwest. So I see. Well, I guess tis the season. Tis the season, but I was wondering if I could throw away the bouquet to my mom. Surgeon. Sure, go ahead. Um, she's also cancer free and I didn't lie and she got her kidney gun and um health science center looked after her very well. I'm glad to hear it. Finally made it a So you say uh, she had a kidney removed? Is that what you said? Yeah, she had her bowels transferred because she said she was in denial of cancer and she had a bag on her side for three years and then she didn't even tell me that she got her kidney removed. And then my family thought that I was lying. I was like, I didn't. But I want to give a shout out to... Dr. Ben and Dr. Fitzgerald, if you don't mind, and the Health Science Center on 4th North Wing B for my mom. So is she home recovering now? Yeah, we got to go back out in December 8th, tub 10th, but um, I said she'd be on her own then, but probably not. <laughs> Well, pass along a get well soon wish from uh, myself and Fonce, Amanda, and I'm glad that she got the care she needed at the Health Sciences Center. Thanks for the time this morning. Wish you good luck. And I thank you St. John's, too. My daughter lives out there, and we stayed at the Sand something. Okay, I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure what hotel that is, but uh, I'm glad it all worked out, and I hope she's on the mend, as they say. Thank you, Amanda. All right. Um, could you say hi to Randy Sims for me if you ever hear from me? Sure. Next time I see him, I'll pass it along. And Jonathan Richler, too. Can do. It was Jonathan's birthday over the weekend. Oh, was it? It was so. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, why don't you give him a nice happy birthday now before we say goodbye? Okay. Happy birthday, Jonathan. I hope. You have a good day, and sorry I didn't make it at the farmer's market this time. Yeah, he makes a pretty mean sandwich, that boy. Uh, thanks, Amanda. Off I go. Take care. You too. Bye All for right. now. Bye-bye. Yeah, happy birthday, JR. Let's go to line number two. Gail, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi. 
I'm calling you this morning now about my roads here where I live. I live in uh, Brooklyn, Bamavista Bay. It's on Route 234. Yeah. I'm sure you're sick and tired of hearing about it. No, never. <laughs> well, I am. I've been two and a half years fighting for this community here, and I've called the government and my MHA, and all I'm getting is just a runarounds, of course. Uh, got to wait for asphalt. I mean, how much more do we have to wait? The fall is here. And I'm understanding that there's only a certain time they can do the asphalt. Once it goes down past seven, they don't recommend it. Am I correct on that, I wonder? Uh, it's somewhere around there, right. I mean, I guess we're getting lucky with some of this milder weather at this point in November, but we're very quickly approaching the time of the year where there'd be no sense laying down any blacktop. That's right, because, I mean, they came out and they done some of the potholes there, but, I mean, they're tremendous big. And right now, I mean, one place in Whitaker where I live, well, the shoulder of the road is gone, and and we're right to the pavement. We're in people's driveways. Like, I'm, I don't understand. I've been talking to the people there in Confederation Building, uh, the ministers, like certain ones, and their deputy minister, whatever they're called in there. And, like, on the last of it, I was told that my community is not a uh, priority. Like, really? It's pretty low license when you go, you say your community is not, you know, not priority. We here have buses. I mean, I have two grandchildren going on the bus here. We have two businesses open year round. And we not only just Newfoundlanders come here, they're everywhere, from everywhere. So, like, I'm sick and tired of writing and putting posts on Facebook, but, like, I can't get anything to go with it nowhere. It's sort of a strange way to put it. You know, a concerned citizen regarding road conditions, which is not just beating up your rig, but it's also a matter of safety, to be told you're not a priority. What constitutes a priority would be my follow-up question. Well, he say, well I said to him, you're, you mean to tell me, I said, that you're telling me that my road, my community, is not priority. He said, well, he said, uh, there's no community, like, there's no, not enough traffic. I said, excuse me? We have buses. We have tourist people coming here and you're telling me my road is not priority i'll tell you for one instance they the road in lethbridge which is only just a community before me they did that road twice in less than two months now why couldn't they come out and do ours they came out and did on i don't know probably i'm going to say probably five or six holes and then they went and got new signs made and put up signs is not going to cut it for the winter um how far is your community from lethbridge Oh my goodness, um, not very far. No, I didn't like, think so. No, it's been probably a kilometre if, if it's that. Okay. I think, well, from where I live, from where the far out is in Lethbridge, I'm three kilometres away. So that explains that I'm not very far. Well, Gail, it's, uh, you know, I, like every time we have a road condition call, I guarantee you the vast majority of the listeners are nodding along saying, my road is the same way or my road yeah. is worse and where's my bit of pavement? And, you know, right. there's always going to be the politics pavement, which is what has frustrated me over the years. I know it's probably true in some circumstances. You know, when we have a careful review of the whole five-year plan, and they've done some smart stuff like early tendering and a five-year plan, even though they have some wiggle room available for when something pops up, out of nowhere to attend to a bit of road work but in years past you could very carefully follow along with what member of the governing side got how much pavement per paving season i don't think it's as bad now but it certainly was at one point well that's what i'm saying patty i was talking to him like i said a man in there to come to Liberation building and i said to him i said look boys i said what are you doing with your money from the taxes and i said this is quite a bit you get from the gas taxes i know that and oh it's going into education and uh and healthcare, I said, excuse me? And I said, that's just as bad as our roads. 
<laughs> Fair. Uh, the gas tax was absolutely created to deal with road work, road work, bridges, guardrails, That's those right. types of things. But right. I don't know the exact numbers, but these numbers will be close. The government brings in, including carbon tax now, almost $400 million a year. But we only yep. spend about $85 million a year in road work, so we bring in way more. Now, of course, there's only so many companies can do the major road work. The season is pretty contracted as it is, but we bring in way more gas tax than we ever spend on roads. Well, that's what I said to him. I said, like, you know, we had come home here. I said, my son's in Alberta. He had been home for seven years. He wanted to come last year. He couldn't even get a rent car to come home to. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't, like I said to him, I said, my darling, I said, don't come home because I said, you got no roads. I said, anyway. So I said, it's better for you to stay away so much as I love to see you come home. Now, I mean, they're letting people, they've got a contest on the go now, bring your family home. What's he bring it home to? What kind of roads we got? Well, I suppose it depends where you're going. Now, the rental car situation, this is not to defend anybody, but that was everywhere. I mean, most of the rental car companies, they sold off their entire fleet, and then there was all sorts of problems with getting the supply chain back in order for all the different components of vehicles. So, I mean, just look at some of the car dealerships right here on Came Out Road where I work. I mean, there's, they went months without anything to sell. You know, it's so weird. It was terrible now. We got well. nobody here. I went, I went to go get a car last week, and it's not here. I got to wait until January of next year. Yeah. Like, really? I mean, I don't understand. Like, I, I just don't understand or where I can go. I'm to a brick wall because, like, I'm sick and tired of being laid down the path, as as Newfoundlander says. Like, send the fool further. Uh, my rope, my hands are tied. I don't know where else to go. But I'm telling you now, if we got to go through this the winter with this road we got here, you can safely say that someone's going to be definitely hurt. I don't like to hear that. I appreciate well, the time this morning and the update, Gail. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's see. We're on Twitter, and uh, as I mentioned, I don't haven't seen it a whole lot different, but certainly the tone and some of the back and forth with the new ownership and the new model that they're pursuing, wild. So, but we're VOCM Open Line. We're still there. Follow along. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. And a listener said, you know, I gave a lot of leeway or latitude to a caller from the southwest coast or in the Port of Port region uh, and the numbers of people opposed to the World Energy GH2. And it's the concept of NIMBY, not in my backyard. The issue, like I, I pointed out, is living on the other side of the island, my concerns will be vastly different than folks living right there in the area. So that's a real thing, not in my backyard. It, it absolutely, truly is. But what's the relevance of pushing back against it? What am I to say that because you don't want to have them in your area, you don't want to have the, the eyesore that the wind turbines are, the difference in the distance of buffer zones in one jurisdiction to another? So, yeah, it's like the Muskrat Falls Project. You know, the concern for people living around and along the Churchill River, they had much more in the way of environmental concerns versus, I think, some people, not all, some people, say, for instance, living on the Northeast Avalon, where their prime concern was, was probably in the cost. So, yeah, where you live is very much uh, influencing on your opinion. Okay, today's a good day to get on the program, so pick up the phone during the news break to get in the queue. Speak with Fonts, and away we go. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Don. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Doing okay. You? Oh, I'm doing all right. I'm still here. Now, I ask you a question. Where do you think the new hospital should go? It's a good question. Um, 
the concept here is that there's some thoughts it should be on the Grace property, which I don't know if it's a big enough spa plot of land to really accommodate the need for parking and the hospital and everything else that goes with it. I'm not entirely sure where it should go down. You know where I think it should go? Where? Central Newfoundland. All kinds of land here. There is, and but I think you also have to pay attention to population numbers when we determine where we're going to see, build. That's the problem. That's the problem right now. That's the problem I got. Why should we from the West Coast have to go to St. John's to get some vascular surgery, a blood clot? Why can't the people come from St. John's to Central? That's the problem I got right away. Well, I think population is important, and not just because I'm a townie, just because I think of the obvious. The population on the Northeast Avalon has grown by 25% since 2000. That don't matter to me. How, well, it, do, it does matter when we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure. Of course it does. That's right. So the biggest population gets the biggest growth. They had collaborate uh, clinics going to St. John's. Everything we need on the West Coast, we got to go to St. John's. Well, not everything. There's a new hospital in Cornerbrook. New hospital in Cornerbrook. Yeah, but it, they can't even do a vascular surgery. They yet. can't even do a dye test. That's why I was surprised where it was all about the CAT scan versus everyone in the province. If you want to get a dye test done, you have to come to town. That one just doesn't make much sense to me. You know, no cath lab in the new hospital in Cornerbrook. That would be one of the things you think that people would be talking about because just prior to it, we used to have a couple of conversations with two fellas who were in the hospital, taking up a hospital bed, not sick, but waiting for a dye test appointment at St. John's, all the while continually admitted out at the uh, Cornerbrook Hospital. So, yeah, strange one. But here's what I'm saying. If it was a central hospital, okay, say you lost your job at BOCM today. Yep. And they had an opening in Grand Falls in central Newfoundland for you. You will go there to provide for your family. Well, it depends what it was, yeah. Yeah, you would. So why can't we have a, this hospital put in the central area? People from the West Coast got to drive seven hours, eight hours to get to St. John's. For some, pro- for some procedures. Yeah. So that's my argument on that one. Fair enough, Don. Now, the second one is mm-hmm. <laughs> on the scientists. You believe in scientists really well. I know that. Yeah. But you can't get none of them right. What are we talking about now? Okay, we talk about scientists. You believe in them so faithfully, but they can't agree on a PPE or N95 mask. They can't agree on the fisheries, the scientists can't. The experts can't agree on money. So who are, who are we to believe in this conversation? On what subject in particular, Don? Anything. You got fishery scientists. They can't agree with each other. You got health. Now, I noticed on the news the other day, there's more charges going against pharmaceutical companies for the uh, opioid falsifying their paperwork. Yeah, and they did that on purpose. There's a difference between lack of consensus on some of the big scientific issues of the day versus companies all in the air of profit lying about things. They purposefully right. uh, withheld and information. There's a, there's a long way between scientists disagreeing on scientific matters versus a company lying about an opioid. It's not even the That's same right. conversation. So do you think I believe Pfizer? Do you think I believe Moderna? After I hear about Purdue and... These other pharmaceutical well, companies? Pfizer's already scientists. had to pay all kinds of money out in compensation claims. Lots of it. Okay. So, like I said, 
Now, they mandated everybody to take that needle from Pfizer, Moderna. They mandated that. If you didn't take it, you could be laid off and fired. That's true. Then, two months later, they mandate people to go back to work, whether they got COVID or not. In some settings, that's true. There were some healthcare workers that they were evaluating risk for returning to work. That's Thank you very much. That's the best thing I heard today. You said I was true. Okay. I uh, appreciate the call, Don. Thank you kindly. Take care. Appreciate Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Al, you're on the air. Hello, line number two. Al, you're Hello. That's you, Patty. That's me. Patty, not a bad day out. Uh, not too bad. It's warm. Oh, it's warm, yeah. Listen, Patty, what are we going to do with winter? When this oil, this oil, I know it's people that's going to have to shut off their oil. That's all they can do. And they're going to get coveralls to put on. They'd be sleeping in the bed with the coveralls on. That's what I heard from people. Well, I'm worried about the winter. I really, yeah. truly am. If we get a long, cold winter, the folks that were struggling last year, year before, yeah. I don't know how they're going to make it all, all well, happen. And they're not going to make it, Patty. I'm, look, I'm worried about it. I've talked about it many times. Whether it be the taxes on home heating fuels or simply the price period, it is an absolute concern, and it's a massive problem. No one's denying yeah. it. I don't know what's going to happen. No, and Patty, I'm not putting on no oil this winter. No, I'll, I'll stick with the coveralls on. Is and that the only source of heat you have in your home? Yeah, just the stove oil. Okay. Yeah, and Patty, uh, this gas bracket, you know what's that? You know what's putting that up? Them electric cars. How's that? Well, because they want to get people to buy all electric cars. Yeah, but that's and so many years down the road before that'll yeah, be an implication. Yeah. And Patty, when they buy some electric cars, the more they get charged all the time, that that battery weakens out. Batteries, like every other technology, is still kind of, when we're talking about electric vehicle batteries, it's still pretty much in its infancy. I know electric cars have been around for a long, long time, but things are changing. They're improving all the time. I'm seriously considering one for my next purchase. You know, like even Toyota says they'll have a solid-state battery. They're they're a good car to Toyota. You can't beat them, Patty. Yeah, they've been a good product. You can't beat them. (laughs) I got one out there in the yard. Now I can go to Toronto and turn around, and she's 2010. And I can come home here without anything happening to her. How many kilometers do you have on your 2010? It's, it's 148, and it's 133 on the Suki. Okay. I got two here. friend of mine has a Honda Civic with uh, yeah. 302,000 kilometers yeah. or something well, else. Them are good little cars too, Paddy. Sure. Yeah. And Paddy, uh, what was I going to say? Not sure. And who's the starter of uh, all this, putting this oil, oil up? I wonder if he got something wrong with his head, I wonder. Well, I'm not sure who you're referring to. There's lots of different... Oh, the, the oil fields. Yeah, there's, there's a couple behind this putting that, that prices up and that. Well, oil's manipulated market. Uh, that much is absolutely true. Yeah. So and, what remains to be seen what's going to happen this winter. People are going to need some assistance for heating their homes. Yeah. No question. And, no. you know, people keep telling me that there's no need to talk about a carbon tax on home heating fuels because we don't yeah. pay it in this province. But that might change. But they got to take that off, too. There's, a, I think, yeah. a reasonable thought to be had about taking taxes off home heating fuels, period. Yeah. Maybe even just for this winter because at some point... The difference between the government's ability to weather a financial storm versus individuals are way different to circumstances. So, yeah. Al, I appreciate the concerns and the well, time. Patty, uh, what was I going to say, Patty? Something oh. else I had to say, and I forget about, about them grocery stores. 
some of them are going to be closing their doors. And Dalarama is going to take her over, and Pipers is going to take her Why over. Why would the grocery stores close their doors? They're doing pretty well. Well, they're, they're, they're gone up. You can't buy nothing in there. Loblaws is, is making a million dollars more per day than this time last year. More. Yeah. Not just a million dollars a day. A million dollars a day more. Well, Del Now, their inputs have been more expensive, but their revenues are super strong. You're going to see Dalarama taking everything all over now. Well, yeah, Dalarama. I don't care who's selling it as long as I can afford it. <laughs> Yeah. Petty, you ha- have a nice day, you Petty. You too, Al. All the best. And thanks for having me on. No problem. All right, then. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, just some, I mean, oil is an extremely manipulated world. You know, whether people want to point fingers of concern at Russia's invasion of Ukraine or OPEC or the amount of production and being done in this country or in the United States, whatever. But here are some numbers for you. This is just in the third quarter for Canada's largest oil and gas companies. All the reports are out now. Suncor profits, $2.565 billion. CNRL, $2.8.14 billion. Imperial Oil, $2.03 billion. Synovus, $1.609 billion. Tourmaline, $2.098 billion. That's profit. That's not revenue. That's profit. That's $11 billion in one quarter. In qu- quarter uh, third quarter of 2021, it was $5 billion. Now it's $11 billion. You know, that brings upon a real interesting conversation regarding windfall taxes. And as much as some people would like to say that the oil and gas industry has been crushed or politically killed in this country, the numbers don't reflect that. Record production, record revenue, record profit. I wish every industry was killed to that tune, where records right across the board. But what does legitimate corporate windfall tax look like? You know, there's... There's ways to talk about this without pretending that we're going to kill the industries in full. The oil companies will go where the oil is. Yes, they want regulatory uh, certainty for exploration and production. Yes, they want to know if any of their investment will actually come to fruition and production fields will be the reality. But whether it be grocery store profits and or oil company profits, you know, that's what's driving inflation, housing and energy. And, boy, those numbers, $11 billion this quarter. Last year, in quarter three, it was $5 billion. You're trying to tell me there's not a conversation to be had about how we view the energy sector, how we tax the energy sector, how we should reduce subsidizing the energy sector, which we do to an inordinate uh, amount every year. Money flows from governments to the oil industry. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, I mean, predictably, when Don called about where the new hospital to replace St. Clair's should be built, and he suggests in Central... I mean, I, I suppose I understand the concept of you centralize infrastructure, makes it easier to access for more people. But I do think, and I mean, I'll stick with it. it. It almost has to be on the Northeast Avalon, doesn't it? I mean, half the population lives here. The population, and it's not because I'm a bloody townie, as one person pointed out in an email, is if the population right here in this region has grown by 25% since 2020, and it's only growing year over year, day after day. It just makes sense to have it close to the largest uh, concentration of the population, doesn't it? 
for me, like we tried to talk about on the program, you know, people talk about the political timing of this and deflecting from other stories that may be dogging the Liberals or dogging the Premier. But the biggest concern that I think, well, that I have is, look, St. Clair's is 100 years old. At some point it has to be replaced. Is the right time now? I don't know. The focus on recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals, does that trump the need for a new hospital? Sure. But by the new hospital, by the time the tender goes out and by the time the uh, project is finished, we're going to be well down the road in the short-term immediacy of needing healthcare professionals without a, uh, without a doubt. It's the public-private partnership. You know, there's a difference in having a P3 in place to build a bridge. There's a difference in having a place to build a penitentiary or a long-term care facility or a hospital. So that's where I think we don't really have enough detail. Now, the department responsible says we will have a really transparent look at what the contracts look like. Okay. Well, there's a couple of recent circumstances that mean that's I get, we'll wait and see. But how do you factor in an appropriate level of profit in the construction and the operations of a hospital. How do we ensure that we don't go down the same road of the poor quality of the work done out in Central in those two 60-bed units of long-term care? The hundreds of deficiencies that were identified. The amount of time it took to rectify said deficiencies and get people in. Now, I know there's an ongoing staffing issue with at least one of them, where only half the beds are occupied. But how we evaluate the appropriate level of a P3 here is, I think, a big question. It will see some short-term relief for the taxpayer. But that's where, you know, I, I try to put it this way. Speak to me like I'm um, 15 years old. Tell me exactly what the implications would be if government went it alone in five years, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. Let's do the same thing and show me the same math for what a P3 looks like so that we can understand whether or not it's short-term relief for long-term pain. It ends up costing us more because even if we are in tight financial times now, there's no sense pretending that kicking it down the road, kicking that can down the road makes us any better off, makes us uh, any better fiscally, individually, and or the, the government itself. So it's the concept of the P3 that I think needs much more serious evaluation because we're currently involved in not only those two facilities out in Central, it's also with the uh, Her Majesty's Penitentiary replacement up on the White Hills here. It's also with the new Hospital for Mental Health and Addictions, which is currently under construction on the Health Sciences Complex. So it's more to it than just new infrastructure. And yes, you can talk about political timing. And yes, we can talk about staffing issues. I see some interesting commentary, or in the form of pushback, I suppose, with the government, of course, there was a desk set up in Warsaw, Poland, to deal with Ukrainian immigrants, and some of which are indeed healthcare professionals, doctors, who are here waiting for some streamlined process to see their licenses approved. There's also some ethical concerns, because we heard last week that the province is setting up a, a recruiting desk in a city in India. And, of course, the population of India is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.4 billion people. And there's this one state in this particular city. I think this, the city's called Bengaluru, if I'm not mistaken. This one state therein has about 100 nursing schools. So while we are fighting province to province for healthcare professionals, the province trying to do more work on this front go to India in this uh, circumstance. Then it possibly, someone sent me some quotes and clauses coming from some UN conventions that talks about the ethical approach to poaching or trying to attract or incentivize a healthcare worker in one country or another to come here. 
So on top of what are some logistical concerns and accreditation licensing, people are showing me some quotes or clauses that are coming from conventions, which Canada signed on to, about the ethical nature of going to some countries to uh, try to attract a healthcare worker. All right, let's go. Line number one, Ruby, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Good morning. Uh, I have the highest most respect for three people. One is my uh, female psychiatrist I had for 10 years. She was an angel. Uh, now I have a male psychiatrist. He's an angel. And you. I'll take it. Uh, thank you. So anyhow, I just want to let you know, the worst thing ever happened in my life, someone very dear to me was tortured. And so was I. I can handle myself, but when there's someone there to you, my heart is broke every day. So now I'll get to the point. So my psychiatrist, I met with him three weeks ago, and he said, Ruby, he told me he never heard the likes in his life what I'm after going through. And I use foul language, and I'm not doing it on there. And he said, I said, how do you expect me to deal with it? And you're a psychiatrist. He said, you're strong. So anyhow, he said, one thing I can say for you, I have no worries. You can take care of yourself. I said, thank you. So anyhow, he said, your last year has to be the worst in shelters and in community care homes. And he was right. So anyhow... It was only a couple of shelters that I had a hard time. I'm finally safe now. I mean, the shelter is excellent. And I can't thank them enough. I'm finally happy. So anyhow, I spent a quarter of my life at the Waterford Hospital due to someone there being tortured. So anyhow, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Bipolar, which is questionable. So anyhow, my last day at Waterford, I was tortured by the psychiatrist. What does that mean? I was put on 500 milligrams, no, 600 milligrams of steroid. And someone who have experience with that drug and my psychiatrist, it can be a deadly drug. I begged them. I was there for three months. I cried. I said, listen, I take it 20 minutes after I can't walk. I used to call 911. Then a male nurse came and said, no, she's psychiatric, uh, mentally ill. Yeah. I, so. so anyhow, I ended up in a community care home after I left there. And you're happy I, and you're safe now, Ruby? Yes. Okay, so that's the but good I news. have to tell you about the community care home, the neglect. Very quickly. The, uh, there's residents there are severely mentally ill and dangerous. There's two very dangerous. I got a smack in the back of the head from one, and I uh, she smacked me so hard, I had to call the paramedics. My forehead, I couldn't stand the pain. Paramedics said it's like getting a whiplash. There was nothing done about it. There's not a resident hit the staff, two staff members, and 
the owner's sister called the RNC. So it uh, gave the statement, send them to the Waterford, never evicted them. So I was petrified there for six months, going around with prayer beads and medals, trying to keep it together. So anyhow, do you know how I lived? Three tea bags in a kettle of water. There were 16 residents. Three spoonfuls of coffee in a kettle of water. For snack, a half a banana, they cut it in half. A long treat ice cream, cut it in half. Another snack before bed, four premium plus biscuits with peanut butter. I was hungry, and so oh. were the rest of them. Right, and that's an unfortunate circumstance for anyone to live in. The summary is, I'm glad you're safe and happy in the home that you're in now, Ruby. And I yes. appreciate the time and the kind words off the top of the conversation. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Stay in touch. Paddy? Something got to be done about that home for the safety of residents. Okay. And listen, thank you for taking up the time to talk to me. Because you know something, one last thing? The almighty dower makes quite a few people dangerous. Uh, that'll always be the case, won't it? Uh, thanks, yes. Ruby. Take good care. And I just appreciate Ruby. the simple life. I appreciate the time. So I'm in a safe home. Ruby. And how I deal with stress is cleaning, and they're allowing me to do it. Oh, I was told at the home I was washing clothes. I wasn't allowed to do it anymore. They were afraid I was going to drink Javix. Well, don't do that. And I uh, wouldn't off, do that. Off I go now, Ruby, but I appreciate the time. Paddy, thank you very much, and I pity people in some homes. For sure. Take care. Bye, Ruby. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, safety inside any care home, personal care, long-term care. And like we spoke with the seniors advocate, uh, Susan Walsh, one day last week, about patient safety and structural issues, by that I mean human resources, still got to get down to the bottom of how and why so many long-term care residents are living in restraints for at least a portion of the day and what percentage are on antipsychotic drugs because the comparison to the national averages, there is something completely and distinctly out of whack. All right, so lots of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing right after this break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. I just saw an email about insurance companies. They didn't have a chance to read through it, but the subject line was insurance companies. Then you read a story, look, Hurricane Fiona or post-tropical storm Fiona made landfall here six weeks ago. And there's people out in Port Basque in particular still making insurance premium payments. You know, they've been told pretty much with 99% certainty that they will not get any coverage for their damaged or demolished homes as a result of a storm surge. But what's taken the company so long to send them the letter of full denial? So folks with the 1% chance of maybe getting insurance coverage are making premium payments. I mean, there's something patently unfair about that. If the companies know there will be no coverage, then send the letters out. You know, being told now they're in the mail, and the story includes a couple of people that have continuously made all of their insurance payments. Another uh, family's made enough payments to ensure that the policy doesn't end up uh, null and void. But come on. 
You know, it's all bad enough that we can't figure out a way to have insurance coverage for things like this in a coastal community like Port of Basque. But, you know, send a letter. If you're rejecting their claim, send it out. In addition to making their repayments, they can't even get into the process of having the provincial government backstop some of their losses because they have to have a full rejection from the insurance company before the province steps in. So maybe, just maybe, in the era of fairness and doing what's right, Send them the letter. If you're denying their claim, send the letter out so they can get on with their lives. So let's go to line number one. Jerry, you're on the air. Jerry on one? Yes, how you doing, Patty? I'm fine this morning. Thanks. How about you? Not bad. I, I was just inquiring there a couple of weeks ago. You guys were talking about uh, what was happening in Rabbit Town there with the uh, community watch and all that stuff. Did anything ever happen with, the, with those folks and, and their crime spree that they're having there? Uh, the criminals themselves? No, no, just just the uh, the uh, do all the addictions and all that stuff in the community. Like they, I guess they had a couple uh, ministers or or, uh, or members of uh, the legislature that was there at their meeting. Did they ever get anything settled with uh, some of the, the the issues that they got? I guess the short answer, Jerry, is no. But uh, it's important to understand what that question means. Like, are you talking about did they formally establish a neighborhood watch? Has there been any arrests made or crack houses cleared cleared out or anything? So, what specifically are you are, are you asking? Well, I'm just I'm just well, the issue is a lot is a lot bigger than than what you can cover on this show, right? But oh, I'm sure. just wondering if they got any satisfaction, like from from the the, uh, the constabulary and all that stuff, if they were helping them out or. Did, you know, their, did their neighborhood watch start up or, you know, just say any positive stuff that would have came out for policing, right? Yeah, well, I, not that I know of. Nothing that's been reported to me. But, you know, I guess I'll stick with my answer, probably not, because this is not okay. new. There's a couple of those neighborhoods oh, I, that they've been in the news for years about this. Yeah, it's. I, I know we have a major issue on the island with addiction, and that's a, that's a, con, a constant right now. It's getting worse. It seems to be, doesn't it? You know, the stats on crime are really not that staggering, but the perception is important because people not feeling safe is people not feeling safe. Certain neighborhoods in this city in particular, I'm more familiar with the city than I would be with many other communities, obviously, but there are certain pockets of this city that are under siege. Now, there's also going to be conversations about root causes, mental illness, and drug addiction. But at the end of the day, for the citizens that are on the receiving end of these uh, crimes being committed, then, you know, the root cause is one thing. We have to talk about it. But the police presence, there's this one neighbor. I'll, I'll leave the specifics out because I don't know how fair it is. But the cops are there well, all just, the time. I just, brought, I, just, I just brought it up because they were talking about it. I, just, I want to know if they had any, conclu- any uh, results from that. So we can bring it up to my community watch to see whether or not we can adapt some of their stuff because uh, policing on the island's pretty bad. Uh, you know, it's pretty bad. The you know, the RCMP or the Constabulary they don't have the uh, the resources or the fu- or the funding for the police police officers to be on. Like in my area, there's only three squad cars on a night, and they have to look after basically 100 square miles of uh, you know the fallen community in Central, right? Yeah, fair enough. There's certainly a concern with the how they use the the different uh, the different resources that they have available with the RNC and the RCMP. But uh, here's what I'll do. I know a couple of the folks that you're referring to that were at that public meeting. If they have an update to share, I'll just send them a quick note here and see if they have it. Yeah. And if so, I'm happy to connect you with them as well if they have some positive news for you. Well, it's, it'd be nice to get some positive news because I'm tired of hearing bad news. Hey, me too, man. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thanks very much for uh, taking my call. Patty. Appreciate the time, Jerry. Take care. All right. All right. Thank well, you. Bye-bye. Well, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. We'll probably try to get to the break on time, but Daryl Shelley's in the queue. Daryl's a spokesperson for the Environmental Transparency Committee out on the West Coast regarding all the environmental sensitivities with the project. Now, there has been reference by a couple of listeners on Twitter and in my email, is that are these concerns just NIMBY or are there other concerns that have to be addressed? Because if someone doesn't simply want it where they live, then... You know, throwing around tags like NIMBY is just going to further cement their position. So we'll hear what Daryl has to say about their specific concerns for this World Energy GH2 project right after this break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the spokesperson for the Environmental Transparency Committee out on the West Coast. That's Daryl Shelley. Good morning, Daryl. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. It's been, a, it's been a minute. How you been? Doing great. How about you? Good, sir. We've been uh, out here trying to uh, stop this wind turbine project from happening in the port of Port Peninsula. It's taken up a considerable amount of time and been spending my other free time on NL United, which is a new provincial party we're uh, starting here on the island. So lots of stuff going on. I did see that new upstart party. We can get to a couple of uh, comments about that after we talk about World Energy GH2. So the comments coming from some corners, because on this side of the island, people might be worried about, you know, the protection of crown land and trying to create a royalty and ensure that there's something in it for us versus just all profits flowing to John Risley and his group. If you're on the southwest coast of the province or probably in the Port of Port Peninsula, you might have different thoughts. So what exactly is the opposition? Because with the survey I saw, 84% opposed. I didn't really understand why so many people would be opposed. What are they saying? Yeah, well, um, I'll get to the survey in a second, but I mean, even the financials of it, there's really not enough in it for Newfoundland and Labrador to start. I mean, Riesley's offering a uh, $10 million vibrancy fund for a project that's worth $12 billion. So that's less than 1% of the project that they're saying they're going to offer in the construction phase. Um, to be honest with you, most projects of this scale or any any kind of wind projects, they offer about 1% on return, which would be about $120 million to start. They're not even coming close to that. And yet you've got people that are going, well, look at all the jobs it's going to bring. Well, I was at the Days Inn on October 17th at the Bay St. George Business Week luncheon, and I asked Sean Lee in front of a room full of people where are the jobs coming from, and the high-paying jobs are coming from Northern Europe. He said it right there in the conference, right there at the meeting. So there's going to be uh, uh, jobs here for people once they're trained, but it's going to take two or three years to get them trained. And then he said, well, they can fly away and work somewhere else. So we're already doing that, aren't we? Yeah, just a quick question on the $10 million. Uh, Am I wrong in saying that when that was announced, it also included the fact that whether or not the project goes ahead, the wind project or the hydrogen project goes ahead, that $10 million will be spent anyway. So do we have an understanding of what other, what other kind of money can be returned to the province, to the communities impacted when the deal eventually gets struck like it looks like it will? So I don't think that's the end of the road for benefit, though, is it, Daryl? No, I, there's going to be tax revenue, obviously, which is always you know a good thing. But that's par for the course. There should be a better vibrancy fund. You know, the people involved here, the towns and the communities, um, especially the leader, a lot of the leaders, and even our own MHA have not been very supportive of the people in the Port of Port Peninsula. And uh, 
they should have started out by looking at all 31 proponents across the province, as Parsons say, the Andrew Parsons, he says they have that right now, 31 proponents. So how come they're not looking at all 31 proponents, putting everybody on the same starting line and saying, look, who's going to offer us the best here? Who's going to give us uh, a good vibrancy fund? Who's going to help us with our infrastructure locally? I mean, Reasley and them, they're doing the bare minimum, and it's, it's, it's been... Can you uh, give us further detail? Sorry. Sorry, I don't know what that was. Continue, yeah. Daryl. No problem. Yeah, I mean, the bare minimum is uh, you know, $10 million in the vibrancy fund. We don't have any guarantees from them other than they're going to have a, a college a college program at the College of North Atlantic, tax revenues, maybe some jobs which haven't been guaranteed, and uh, $10 million on a $12 billion project, which is going to be split, by the way, between Port-a-Port, Doyle's, Stephenville, and communities in between. It, it, it's pittance when you, when you divide it over three years. Yeah, I, I'd like to think that that's not the end of the road, even if it's jobs and taxes. I think there's got to be a way to do a bunch of protection here, Crown Land being the notable for my personal position. And then I, there's got to be some way to create a royalty for access to all that water that's required. You know, because we can't create a royalty with the wind. What are we going to do, measure it on kilometers per hour? So, no, we've got to make sure that any implications regarding our electrical grid uh, come at a cost to the company, not to me. So those are some of the areas of concern I would have. Then, you know, I guess if I'm living uh, near the port of Stephenville, I would have concerns with maybe the ammonia plant and the hydrogen plant. But I get the sense, and you tell me if uh, you think I'm wrong, I get the sense that this might be as much just, I like the concept, I like the sound of it, I like the jobs and taxes, but I don't want it where I live. Yeah, the NIMBY, the NIMBY approach. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. That's definitely part of it, not in my backyard. But like overall, as a province, we really got to look at what's going on here. And 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 again, it's it's not worth the squeeze. This project, they've been very, uh, they haven't been transparent. Like let's, you guys did a piece uh, that I was mentioned in on Saturday that talked about the clear cutting that was happening up behind the West Bay and mainland, which is uh, two communities in the Port of Port Peninsula. They went ahead and started clear cutting. Uh, looks to us by the footage that we got three to four acres. Uh, just in one area, and they said they're putting up these m measurement towers for wind, even though apparently they already had done studies because apparently Port of Fort was supposed to be perfect for wind, which is actually not true. There was a study in Memorial University 20 years ago that said West Coast was fourth or fifth in the province, Burren Peninsula being the best place, so that's that's not true. Um, so, but anyway, they're up there cut, clear-cutting. So we investigated. Uh, we had members from the ETC, that's the Environmental Transparency Committee, call in to John Hogan from World Energy. Turns out he said they had a Crown Lands grant. Marine contractors said they had permits, and they didn't. And then uh, when we called up the forestry, forestry went up there and shut them down. There was a stop work order in, from forestry on Friday, November 4th. And uh, the uh, volunteers from the Environmental Transparency Committee are speaking with forestry again today, and the, and the project is still shut down. So, so if you and I went up into the woods and decided we're going to cut down four acres worth of land uh, just because we had some idea, uh, you're telling me you and I wouldn't get arrested on the spot or have our trucks and our tools seized? Of course we would. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, on that front, so we had a caller, first one this morning, talking about where all that clear-cut wood went. And it really does feel like cart in front of the horse. I will grant people that in full, because if we're clear-cutting for something that hasn't been green-lit, that really raises a couple of red flags. Do we know where the wood is? 
Um, there's rumors that it's been given to some local who was selling it and this and that, but I can't confirm anything. But I know that it hasn't been gone back to the communities as promised. Um, this 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 company's been doing things in a, in, a, in a shade of gray that is unprecedented. And uh, Andrew Parsons was in uh, was in the House of Assembly, and he said in the last session that if anybody says that these projects should get approved based on who you know, that that's garbage. And he, and I'm, I'm quoting him. Uh, I'm saying it here and now, anywhere. If anyone can say anything different, then come show me proof. Well, Parsons proof is if these guys have permits to go back to work uh tomorrow which is what the company some of the companies are saying uh then the only way they're going to do that is by getting a rubber stamp from your government so if they're going up there clear cutting all of a sudden because we kicked up a stink you know if you and i wanted to get a crown land application for anything at all it takes months if not years even if you've got the money in the pull it still takes quite a bit of time so they're supposed to be up there doing evaluations on endangered species or wildlife or watershed they're up there clear cutting already i mean it's preposterous yeah, I would like to know where the wood went because the initial thought was that the locals would have access to it. That's important because we've gone down this path before with wood. I mean, just think of the clear-cutting that was done for Muskrat. That ended up rotten to the point where we paid to get it trucked away. Yeah, and I mean, it's in their pamphlet. It says right in there the wood will be given back to the locals. See, what they've done is they put together a wind turbine committee of mayors in the port of port Peninsula and some of the leaders of the local service districts. Now... Uh, about half the people that were on that have resigned or left, and they've joined the, either the Environmental Transparency Committee or they're they're doing their own sort of individual activism. One of the ladies involved, who's uh, the chair for Mainland LSD, was told that she couldn't come to uh, one of the she couldn't participate in one of the meetings because her town was polled at 99% against the project. So. These, this small group of people that has been working directly with World Energy GH2, they're the only ones who have answers as to what's going on, and the rest of the general public and the people that have resigned from that committee don't know what's going on. So maybe we need somebody from the Port-a-Port Wind Turbine Committee, which has not, never met with the public, has never released any minutes of meetings, has never gone onto any public space to speak about this like I'm doing right now. Maybe someone from, from that committee can come on here because they seem to be the John Reasley Committee. Yeah, well, I mean, we had Mr. Ridgely on this program. We tried to ask him everything we could think of to make sure that we covered as much ground as we possibly could. But, you know, I don't think people are wrong to say, hey, how are we clear-cutting for something that might never come to pass? It just screams it's happening. Yeah, it really does, and it's, it's concerning because, like I said, 84% of the people were polled. There was 1,027 people polled. There were more people polled, but some of those were not included for, in the poll for various reasons, whatever it was. An application was uh, you couldn't read it or whatever. What they did is they went door-to-door, -door, and then they also had polls in communities where people went in in person. They had to give their home address. They had to have their ID. They had to be, it had to be witnessed by a commissioner of oaths, and uh, they, had to, they were asked a simple question, were you for or against the project? And uh, it came out 84% of the, the people that were polled on 1,027 people. There's about 4,500 people living out there, so it's a sizable chunk, were against the project. And like I said, one of the ladies that was sitting on the Port-a-Port -Port Wind Turbine Committee, which was a John Reasley-appointed committee, um, she's not allowed to go to their meetings now because her town was against it by 99%. So they're dividing the communities up, and I'm really upset as well with uh, Tony Wakeham, who came to a meeting with uh, came to a meeting. He's our MHA. He came on the 25th. He came to Sheaves Cove. We spoke to him in front of a room of almost 200 people. He said that he promised that he was going to bring her petition forward. He did a lu lukewarm petition uh, in the House of Assembly. He didn't mention our polls. He didn't mention the another. We have another 1,100 signatures, Patty, that we've gotten that are against the project outside of the polls. Uh, there's like 25 people working on this. So he didn't mention John Reasley. He didn't mention World Energy GH2 in his, in his petition. He didn't mention Andrew's uh, Andrew. 
Fury's conflict of interest and his fishing trip was not mentioned. He didn't mention the port of port community polls. He didn't mention the thousand plus signatures collected, and he didn't even name the project in his petition. So I was disappointed that he flew from St. John's to come and meet with us in Chiefsco and put together a lukewarm petition and then said, well, everybody wants economic growth in, in the Port-au-Port Peninsula. Well, of course everybody wants economic growth in Newfoundland and Labrador. We need that. But if they're going to be giving us less than 0.8 of a percent of a project in a vibrancy fund and then coming through with these little uh, secret uh, committees and so on and clear-cutting without permits and then having uh, fishing trips, which, I mean, the whole thing. Is- yeah, I don't know about the fishing trip. I, I, I think that's an optics problem as much as a realistic problem. Problem. Uh, very quickly before I have to get to the news, Daryl. So you ran in the last federal election under the PPC banner. You've started a new provincial party. So does that mean you would run again federally if t- if time things worked out for you for the People's Party of Canada? Or is this new political provincial entity going to consume your political time? So all of my efforts right now, besides family and business life, goes uh, towards NL United. This is a provincial party in the making. We're gathering signatures. We've been gathering signatures for months now. I have nothing to do with federal politics at this time and and nothing to do with any federal parties. I learned from running in the federal election that no federal party cares about Newfoundland and Labrador. None of them. Not the one I ran for. Not not the not the conservatives, not the liberals. They don't care. Like Goody Hutchings is a is a prime example. This is in her district. It's supposed to be the largest wind energy project ever proposed in North America. It's huge. She's not even spoken to the issue. She hasn't listened to us because she has the toe of the liberal line. NL United thinks that the provincial uh, government should come first and that the people in this province should have autonomy over Ottawa and be able to make our own decisions first. And the MPs are nothing more than token delegates. They mean nothing to me. We should have autonomy on everything in full, like the whole Sovereignty Act, things being floated around in Alberta? I think it should be similar to what's happening with Scott Moe and sketch from what happened in Alberta right now with Daniel Smith. Yeah, I think we should be more autonomous. We should stand on our own two feet. Newfoundland and Labrador should put our resources and our people first, and we should do what's best for the people in the province. Like I said, the, the people in this in the town of Steenville spent $26,000 to send four delegates in Hamburg, Germany, to witness a memorandum of understanding signed last month about this project in particular, and they're all gung-ho about a $10 million investment that's going to be divided between like 30, 40 communities. If we we had real leadership in this province they'd sit down and say we want at least 120 million dollars to start we're not even talking to you we need people that actually have the, the spirit and the fortitude to stand up for these companies and get proper investment so that we don't end up with another muskrat falls in western newfoundland yeah this one is very much a different business model than muskrat thankfully so uh daryl off to the news appreciate the time thanks patty have a good one you too bye-bye all right, it is indeed time for the newscast. When we come back, today's the day for you to join us live on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or else we're a toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. We heard from Daryl Shelley talking about the region and the region's opposition to a project. Now, one person's uh, reason for opposing this particular project, well, that's up to them. It's some of it simply because they don't want it where they live. That's part of it, I would assume. But in the concept of regionalization, you know, when the municipality of Newfoundland and Labrador had their annual conference last week, There's so many topics that were on the agenda, whether it be infrastructure, clean drinking water, housing, climate change plans drawn up municipally, 
what apparently, quote-unquote, hogged a lot of the spotlight was regionalization. Now, as we all know, it got off to a bit of a rocky start when, in fact, most of the opposition to any regionalization or county system or collaboration came from people living in the local service districts. And it's understandable. They weren't included in the consultations at the onset. But now it's out there. The next steps, I guess, come from the department provincially, as opposed to municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, even though they're obviously a partner at the table. Is it is going to be a concern for some communities. For some regions, they've already pursued it, maybe in baby steps. You know, collaboration regarding Lab City and Wabush to reopen the Mike Adam Recreation Complex. Whether it be some communities that have tried to put their heads together to try to share costs, whether it be with garbage collection or whatever else. So apparently it got an awful lot of conversation at the MNL conference. Probably be interesting to know where next steps lie. We spoke with Craig Pollitt, the outgoing CEO of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, last week here on the program about where we go from here. Because this is going to be something that happens organically. I mean, it just is. If we look at some of the smaller, isolated rural communities, it's not because I say so, but because the proof's in the pudding. If we have average age in some of these communities being what it is, and where young families choose to set up shop or put down their roots, at some point, some smaller communities aren't even going to be able to take enough money in from their residents to provide the level of service that they get today, even though some of those services are woefully lacking. So if we had some approach to cooperating and collaborating, and never know, maybe even save some money, don't have to change the names of all the towns or what have you, and it doesn't add a different layer of uh, government or a different level of government, it would be just a matter of cooperating before we, we make it to a point where we have no choice. It becomes uh, inevitable. And at that point, we all know what happens when you don't plan for the future. The chaos and the cost are way more than they should be or need to be. Uh, Larry's talking about something in the regionalization here. Um, <laughs> okay, so he's opposed. The trick is... To have people wherever you live understand that there is not going to be a one-size-fits-all. There can't be. It doesn't even make any sense. What might work in a portion of the Great Northern Peninsula might not have any chance of working on the southwest coast. What might work between Lab City and Wabush might have no chance of working uh, in, in Bonavista, on the Bonavista Peninsula or down the Buren Peninsula. But at some point, some of these things are going to come home to roost. So I would think that if we try to get it right and plan for the future, maybe some opportunities can be identified. And you know, some of the fundamentals, right? Garbage collection. You know, some communities have now found a way to share services and staff to deal with issues that have, they've said that they can save themselves, you know, some money. And consequently, that's less money required from the residents. So apparently got an awful lot of attention. I suppose it would be worthwhile if you're in attendance. You're one of the municipal leaders. And you were at the conference, I want to talk about how that conversation looked, what people were saying. That would be really helpful because I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what was said in the hogging of spotlight and all the different issues that were of concern. And the one about clean drinking water. I mean, it's still mind-boggling to know just how many communities in this province remain on a boil order advisory. Some of these communities, they've been on a boil order advisory for decades. It wasn't a blip in the system. It wasn't a breakdown of equipment. It wasn't the fact that they've got uh, concerns that could be easily overcome. Some communities, and I think the last number I saw was some 160 board order advisories still in place in this province. 
which is really quite something. I mean, it goes back to what you take for granted, right? Like, I can go home today and turn on the tap and get fresh, clean, clear drinking water. And then I see the pictures that people send in from different communities, and they turn on the tap, and out comes legitimately brown sludge, which you can do nothing about. You can do nothing with. There's no way to boil that to the point where it's going to be uh, healthy enough to consume, fit enough to cook with, or to wash your clothes in. So I don't know how some of these people are able to navigate those dirty waters and the brown sludge that comes out of their taps. But, you know, imagine 2022 in Canada, we've still got so many concerns with clean drinking water. And I know, look, I, I anticipate pushback when I make certain comments here in the show, and that's nature of the beast. And it's no hard feelings. You can continue to send the, along the, the notes. And it's the whole business about where some jobs should be. So compare and contrast the fact that I do think that if we're going to build a hospital to replace St. Clair's, it's got to be somewhere in the Northeast Avalon. But this, you know, contrast that with the comments I've made about where the jobs will be when the amalgamation of the four health authorities takes place under Bill 20. We'll get to Bill 20 now in a second. That's a real concern about the jobs. And I do not think that they should all be in town. Absolutely not. There's got to be representatives at the mid-management to management level where you live. If you're in Labrador Grenfell, which is a part of the Great Northern Peninsula and Labrador, it is absolutely unconscionable to think that all of the jobs representing your region are going to be in the city. No way. It doesn't make any sense. So all of these issues regarding where jobs could and should be are all different depending on what we're talking about. In health, we absolutely have to sprinkle those jobs around the province. To the same extent they are now, I don't know. But you can't haul them all into town just because everyone works at the department or the one regional health authority. No or the One Health Authority? Absolutely not. I think similarly, we need to have a better understanding of how it's looking with the amalgamation of the English-speaking school district into the Department of Education. Oh, and on Bill 20, which is the piece of legislation regarding the four health authorities and other matters of creating databases and sharing of personal information, there was a few swipes taken at the Premier last week about his uh, the fact he was on the board of Sequence Bio. They're a genome research company. They asked for volunteers to be part of their initiatives. So Michael Harvey, the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, did meet with Minister Todd Osborne. Mr. Harvey says it was a good meeting. And the whole concept of creating wealthy private sector companies with the creation of a database and selling personal information, the minister says there is nothing in the legislation that talks about selling information. Mr. Harvey is on side with the minister at this point saying that's not a concern, is that we're going to be selling people's personal health information. But Bill 20 is at a bit of a stall now. I think it's positive that there has been a meeting of the minds. Now the Privacy and Information Commissioner is involved here. But it doesn't overlook the fact that it should have never arrived at this point. It sh never should have been here. You know, the process is well understood. The legislation, before it's put forward for first reading in the House of Assembly, is gone through the Privacy Commissioner's office for every reason imaginable. And when we talk about health care... An awful lot of the most per most important personal information that you have beyond your banking information is, of course, your social insurance number and your health information. So, of course, we've got to make sure that this doesn't end up in the hands of the private sector. It makes no sense, right? It, it just doesn't. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. 
uh, welcome back to the show. So, as usual, what I need is some information from the listeners. And in particular now, talking about the rate of absenteeism in school. If you look across the country, and I'm not saying it's about one particular ailment or another, but the surge in children that are being seen by doctors that are admitted to hospital with respiratory, vi- respiratory illnesses is really deeply concerning. Some of it apparently has been attributed to the fact where it's so difficult to get your hands on something like children's Tylenol, for instance. But there's another area where there's an absolute shortage in some of the antibiotics that are used to be treat bacterial infections in children. Now, in this province, we had a big problem with the overprescribing of antibiotics. And the numbers have come back to earth a little bit, and that's good news. And that's the doctors who will report that because there were so many prescriptions out the door for antibiotics, for even for things that antibiotics are not the treatment for. But amoxicillin is one of the most reputable go-to antibiotics for children. And apparently, there's a major shortage of that as well. And not only here, but they also mentioned the shortage that's in the UK. So I don't know why every child is out of school. And the rate of absenteeism, that one lady said it was around 50% in her child's grade 6 classroom last Friday. And yes, we've heard numbers floating around 30%, which is higher than normal. So the amount of calls and then the spike we've seen in flu cases and respiratory uh, illnesses that children are reporting... You know, again, like many other things in the world, we've got this kind of perfect storm brewing again. So in the cost of living world, it's higher interest rates and higher prices of groceries and higher prices to fill up your rig. And in the world of healthcare, it's higher numbers of respiratory illnesses in children. It's high numbers of uh, flu cases already this year in conjunction with shortages on the shelves. Amoxicillin as an antibiotic and or Tylenol children's children's Tylenol or what have you. So what do you see in your child's school? And we won't be able to attribute it all to one illness or another or COVID or whatever the case may be. And again, every time that even if I try to be measured and bring forward things like COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, the pushback becomes, in some cases, really quite harsh. And so be it. But it has not gone away. And we will never know the prevalence of COVID in the community. We have no earthly idea the prevalence of it across the country. Testing has gone by the wayside. So now all we ever have reported is hospitalizations and COVID-related deaths. And in this, in this province, they have been, in fairness, fairly stable. Last week, when on Wednesday, when they u- update the COVID hub, I think off the top of my head, it was nine people in the hospital with COVID-related illness. Uh, two of them were in critical care. And there does continue to be reports of COVID-related death. But again, as people who listen to the show all the time, I've never tried to sensationalize it, nor is it in an effort to make you fearful, but to understand that it's out there and things that you might do to protect yourself. You know, again, being aware doesn't mean that anyone has to be afraid. Now, will there be any change to mandates, masks, or otherwise? I don't know. But what we do know is when, and I'm not encouraging a lockdown because I think that's got its own harmful side effect. Of course it does. But when some of the public health measures were being adhered to by so many people, the instance and the prevalence of COVID went down. It just did. Now, I'm not going to say that two weeks to flatten the curve because obviously here we are almost three years later. But the numbers are big. I mean, just look across the country. Look at Ontario. It's happening. Now, we've always had a bit of a lag behind the rest of the country with these types of issues. But anyway, again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. Just, you know, to be understanding and aware of the fact that it's not gone anywhere is probably helpful. Let's go to line number one. Joyce, you're on the air. Did you say Joyce? Yeah, that's you. 
Hello, Patty Meeboy. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How about you? Good. Frustrated. I've been trying to get through for an hour, and I couldn't get through. Uh, but I, I had to go through the operator to get through. But the guy who took the call said I was putting in an extra eight that didn't belong there. Uh, what I wanted to talk about, Patty, was the last time we talked, I asked about that cat that was tortured by two people in Portobasco, a man and a woman. And I'm wondering if you found anything out I about it. I couldn't find out anything. I couldn't find any police r record of any charges being laid or any convictions. I just don't know. It's terrible, well, no, you know. No, 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 wait, no. We do know that there was charges laid. What became of it, I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to know what happened to them if they got off with a slap on the wrist. Because they're not don't know. on this planet. Anyways, also I want to talk about Krista Freeland was on yes, uh, last week. Yep. And she's putting on this poor face that she had to spread all her bills on the table. She had to cancel her Walt Disney. She's trying to bring herself down to the human level with us, how poor she is. The woman is rolling in dough. What a crock. She must think everybody's stupid. Now, maybe some people are gullible, but I'm not one of them. Yeah, what I find interesting about that, Joyce, is that I heard her say it. And with all of the big issues, it's remarkable to me how every single media outlet, that's basically all they reported on this weekend, was the Disney Plus stuff, versus every other big number and every other headline that came out of the fall economic update. People exactly. are talking about Disney Plus. It's just tone deaf. I mean, whoever's advising her should be telling her, you know, maybe that's not the right approach to be taken here because your member of parliament and your ministerial salary means that you're concerned less than maybe most of us are about oh, how we're making the ends meet. So it just didn't make much sense to say it. But as opposed to talk about the real issues of the day, that's what the media is hanging their hat on is the reference to Disney Plus. It's all just so, if it, all, if it wasn't so sad, it'd be funny. It's so hot air. Lots of hot air, and people, there's people out there that would buy it, but I'm certainly not one of them. I wouldn't trust the government as far as I could throw them, none of them, here in Newfoundland or up in Ottawa. But do you think, you know, <laughs> look, put it this way, from 100,000 feet above sea level, she's not necessarily wrong that people are making those types of decisions. In fact, it's absolutely true. But to pretend that she's forced to make those types of decisions is what gets people riled up, right? Yeah, well, that's what got me riled up. I was thinking, what does she think? We're all stupid? Yeah. But oh. now, have, have, you probably had to make some decisions in your world about I how and where to spend actually, your money. Uh, I have. Patty, I canceled some of my um, stations on my TV to get the bill lower. And I did that there about a week and a half ago. So uh, there you go. That's the norm for a lot of people, I'd say. And about, um, well, Trudeau, he loves to pass the Chinese around, the way they're treating their people, and he wants to be a dictator, and boy, he's doing it. Not All the governments much. are doing it, like Ford, for instance, what he did with the teachers. They don't talk to anybody. It's just like, hey, this is going through. Yeah. You know what I mean? The people don't matter anymore. What they say doesn't matter anymore. The government is doing what the government is doing because this is dictatorship the in the highest form. And if people can't pick up on it, well, I don't know. It's pitiful. It is. It's pitiful. And as for fury out there... Just one second, though. I mean, I know people like to say those things, and 
you know, words are important and people are quick to label one party or one leader mm-hmm. as these types of things. But are we really talking about dictatorship? I mean, does that really how people yeah. feel? Because I or heard just people so mad. myself say he liked the way the Chinese ran those Yeah, up. but that's not exactly what was said either. But do we yeah. really think we're living in some sort of dictatorship here? Yes, I do. I certainly do. And it's coming down the pipe big time. You see all the chaos that's going on in the world, Patty? Yeah. Every country is in trouble. The truckers can't afford to be trucking the food. The government wants everybody to rely on them. People are going to lose their homes, their vehicles, and they're not going to be able to eat and da-da-da. And, hey, we'll pay your mortgage, but you got to rely on us. You know what I mean? We'll do for you. But I don't have that problem, thank God. Um, as for the new hospital for Fury and them, they can't... Oh, that's my little uh, cracky there. Um, he can't take care of what he got now. So why would they build a new hospital when they can't even man the ones they got? They're closing up hospitals all across the island. People, I'll tell you, I heard a story of that story the other day, and I don't know who the person is, but a lady was talking to the lady that was serving me because of the small community here in Benoit's Cove. And she said a gentleman was out, he had surgery because he cut his hand bad in St. John's, right? He was out in St. John's. So anyways, he gets a call. You have an appointment for such and such a day. The guy goes out there. You know what he had to go out for? To spend all that money on gas and everything? To be told they were going to change his prescription, Patty. Yeah, well, that stuff is unnecessary. We shouldn't have to be driving around to get prescriptions for it. I mean, she could have told him that, I mean, they could have faxed through anything or whatever and say, this is what we're about to do, right? But not get the man to drive all the way to St. John's and be told we're changing your prescription. I mean... Yeah, I don't know the circumstances of that one, so I'll just leave it at that. But, uh, Joyce, I'm late for the news. You get the last word. Go ahead. Listen, anyway... uh, Everybody's going with electric cars. What are they going to do when there's rolling blackouts and the government later on down the road? I won't be around when this happens, but they're going to pull the plug and say, now what are you going to do? You can't drive anywhere. Well, I think you're talking about a scenario that is years and years and oh, years yeah. down the road, like way so far down the road that we haven't even talked about what infrastructure might be required for the provision of electricity. Like there's lots anyway, that could be done. Uh, they're running the country and they're running the people into the ground and they don't give two hoots about them. Nothing. People are going to freeze to death in the winter. They're going to starve to death and nobody cares except the people that are in that situation. And I think it's terrible that not a lot of people speak out about what's going on with the government. They do all the time. underhanded. It's pathetic. They're supposed to be intelligent, but if a minister speaks out against the head guy. Well, hey, you're out of a job. You're gone. So they're afraid okay. to speak because, hey, they'll lose that lovely pension they got coming. Well, anyway, they, Patty, well, I took up enough of your time. I'm glad I got through. And you have a lovely day. You too, Joyce. All the and best. And I got one more thing to say. If. I love your radio voice, and there's also another guy that comes on, and he sounds just like you. <laughs> and he's got a, I don't know, something about your voice that attracts people. 
Uh, funny thing, because I don't like the sound of my own voice, but I think most well, people my don't. Dear, you're dead wrong, because I think it's great. I'll take it, a little songbird. Yeah, you have a nice day. You too. Take care, Joyce. Thank you. Bye. Right, bye. And look, uh, I don't make a habit of criticizing different media outlets for different things because it's not my bag. Um, but I do think it is. This is where we find ourselves. So as opposed to all of the other moving parts and the, the spending over the next six years and the things we're spending money on, how many people got hung up on Disney Plus, right? And, of course, the Deputy Prime Minister, the minister uh, responsible, said, you know, part of the reason that they canceled it, because, not because they couldn't afford it, because they don't use it anymore. There's stuff in my world that I don't use anymore that I really should be paying more attention to and get rid of. So it's just funny the things we latch onto, right? I think that's the... You know, there's complex issues that need and require complex, complex solutions, but that's the furthest thing of the com from the conversation, right? It's the low-hanging fruit, and we'll smack that off the wall until the pulp is all over all of us and get no further. Anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, Nancy wants to talk about regionalization, and then we'll talk with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go line number one. Nancy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Good. I'm back to talk about regionalization. Okay. So um, everything sort of died down a fair bit. Um, the province decided that they would not go ahead with the report as it was presented um, from MML before, um, that it was going back to the drawing table, basically, to mm -hmm. uh, you know correct some of the things that were obvious glaring omissions or oversights. But... Um, it appears that MNL had their conference last week, and uh, the main topic of conversation was regionalization, um, with Amy Cody saying that even though there are, you know, pretty large costs involved in this, it has to go ahead because status quo cannot be an option right now. And the province said it will move ahead with a plan based on um, a recent report and recommendations received. Okay? So... We, our community, had put in for assessment, the same as a couple of other communities I know of did, um, after the, the whole brouhaha the last time. And we were turned down. And we were turned down because they said in the letter that uh, they listed the cost of the feasibility study and that the department would only support requests for feasibility studies to investigate local governance options where it is demonstrated that communities have made an effort to collaborate with neighboring LSDs, towns, and communities on the idea of incorporation and have committed to adhering to the recommendations of a feasibility report upon its completion. That was brand new news. We, it was never, ever said that you couldn't uh, have a feasibility study done unless you looked at basically amalgamation or at least getting a feasibility study done together as a joint group. So that was a new rule pulled out of somebody's hat. And what I find curious right now is the fact that that was the main subject of conversation at the MNL conference. But the big thing that we were fighting about on that report 
was the fact that it was done with no consultation with LSDs. And guess what? <laughs> it's being talked about with no consultation with LSDs yet again. It's the point that I've made many times. Look, I think the conversation is important. I and I'll get your reaction to this. I think regionalization in whatever people or whatever form people want to talk about, whether it be the county system or collab whatever, it's gonna happen organically. The issue yeah. for me is whether or not we get out in front of it and do it right, whatever right means, because right in one right. part of the province might not be right in another. So it's happening. It's happening right in front of us. So Oh absolutely you know the, the same starting point that we referred to last time, Nancy, is when all of the consultations only took place with the members of the M of MNL, guaranteed folks who are left on the outside looking in would think that there's something more to see. How does it impact us? We haven't been part of the conversation. When people are left out, the, the feeling of being left out means that you're probably going to be opposed. Well, for us, it was, uh, you know, there were several points. As I mean, we talked ad nauseum about, and that was, taking all the community's assets to be merged into the municipal government, like you would no longer own the things that you had all, you know, worked for years with donations and fundraisers and whatnot. All of a sudden now that would be not yours kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That was a big, that was a big, big issue for many of the LSDs. But the, the lack of consultation was the thing. And to, to see this, um, in the news today or yesterday, whenever it was, I saw it was kind of like, well, did they not hear what we said? Like, we need to be consulted with. We need to be talked to. We need to be talked with. And it seems that that is not the case still. And and if they're going to say uh, we're not going to approve um uh, what, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? If we're not going to approve uh, the assessment process for a singular community, then say that. Say we will do assessment by region, or we're not going to assess anything until you've amalgamated, or whatever, whatever it is. But they can't just make it up as they're going along. Well, from and, where I sit, and I'm not a community leader, if yeah. you don't have a feasibility stone and an assessment of what community brings what to the dance, how can you even come up with the appropriate county system framework? It cannot be done. Well, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we've been, you know, we've been turned down. Uh, and and it further to say this letter should not be seen as ending the discussion. Rather, the department would like to see an effort to include other neighboring communities in the discussion on steps going forward. Which, that's great. But why wouldn't you have said that from the beginning? Because we could have then talked to the two or three neighboring communities and said, okay, let's, let's talk to them about this and see what's going on. So, it, you know, it's, it's like every which way you turn, there's another loophole, you know? And, um, and it's really disheartening. It really is. Um, I was speaking to our MHA yesterday and said we need to have a discussion about regionalization again. And not, not even in opposition, but just so we know what's going on. The conversations are happening behind our backs again, right? Yeah. Um, who should be responsible for said assessments? The municipality itself, or should this be... 
you know, very much like the outcome of cooperation. Should this be some collaborative effort where there's guidance on how you do it from MNL, the province through the department, take some of it on? How do the assessments work? Because some municipalities are having a hard time bringing in enough revenue to provide the regular services they provide. So how do we go about the assessment process? Well, well, right now, currently, it's done uh, by the province. So uh, one of the towns in our uh, along our shore is Dildo and South Dildo, and they had their assessments done jointly um, with an eye to amalgamating between those two communities. Um, they had the, they had put in for this before it really got in depth. Right after the very first meeting with the minister, when this all started. Um, they had put in for assessment right away. And so I think they got ahead of the curve on, like, the oppositions and the discussions and all of that. So they've had their assessment done, but it's been – I don't think they've gotten any report back on it yet, and that's been quite a while now. Um, so I don't know if if everything is kind of on hold and the discussions with us are on hold until the – province makes a decision on what pieces of the report they're going to actually go with and what they're going to change because my understanding from our MHA was it was not going ahead as as presented right? okay yeah fair enough so so for for us it's like come out and clearly say what we need to do so that we can do it or choose not to do it but we put in the paperwork to have the assessment done and we're turned down with a new set of rules presented to us now. And what does that mean? Does that mean then we collaborate with two or three communities and then they say, well, no, we're not going to do it now. You know what I mean? It's like it's a total waste of time because <laughs> it, it changes every time you turn around. Yeah. And like you said, how are you supposed to make a decision on who's amalgamating and where and what and if they're, you know, all of that if nobody knows anything? And then the other thing that we talked about as a group when all of this was going on, the change needs to be on the legislative level as well, because some of these small municipalities, they're going to be in bigger trouble than the LSDs, because like you said, they can barely get enough revenue to cover what they're being held responsible for as a municipality. Mm-hmm. And it's because they have to adhere to the same rules as if they were a community of 10,000 people. And there might only be 100 of them. So it needs to it needs to be really looked at on a much broader scale, not just amalgamation and not just um, regionalization. It's like who's bringing what to the table. If you put four municipalities together as one municipality, but there are only 50 people each. You still have a small municipality <laughs> who can't afford to pay. You do, but I mean, even if you just think big numbers out loud here, there's something like 275 incorporated municipalities in this province? Really? Yeah. I mean, that seems like we're just kind of 
creating more where we have more communities under more individualized or unique community banners than really required i mean i'm not saying that all of a sudden we reduce that number to 150 everyone's life gets better overnight but if there's a way for me to say if i'm living in one part of the province or another and someone tells me between the six closest communities we have figured out a way to cost share something like a garbage collection and it's going to save me money i'm into it it doesn't mean we have to go full on and all of a sudden we're in a deep embrace we just find baby steps as a way forward while we try to figure out what the forecast looks like for the age of the population while we figure out what the the feasibility and the estimates or assessment of what i have in my community could mean to sharing with other communities close by so you know step by step we get there i think we've seen some examples already i'll continue to use the one lab city wabush on the rec center that's a baby step you know and so what's the next potential baby step that we can share that's how this works if i you know my personal opinion if we're going to get yeah. it right i'll give you the last word nancy because i gotta get to the break go right ahead yeah well up and down this shore we've been cost sharing and amalgamating services and so on for years and years and years um so we're we're pros at that uh you know pinching pennies where we can to make it work for everybody on the shore um i think we could probably give the government a few lessons on how it can be done <laughs> but we have to be at the table in order to do that Fair enough, Nancy. Good to have you on the show. Appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Very well. How about you? Oh, that's good. Thanks for having me on your show there. Uh, Patty, what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to talk about inflation and how inflation is not going to go down by the way uh, the Bank of Canada is uh, dealing with things. And what we got to look at, oil companies are making record profits. The grocery chains are making record profits. The banks are making record profits. And inflation cannot go down to Europe and interest rates. You're only going to put the small businessman out of business. You're putting people into the poorhouse because if the cost of energy and everything else is going up, inflation will not come down. Well, the Bank of Canada, I mean, whether or not they were too slow to react to what was the creeping upwards of inflation, I think is a fair debate to be having. Uh, Even the most noted economists, look, if you put eight economists in the room and you ask for an opinion, you get eight different opinions. But... It seems absolutely accurate to say that an increase in interest rates will have a long-term implication, like 18 months, two years down the road implication on interest rates versus some other factors now because there's domestic issues and there's international issues regarding the forces of inflation. Number one is the supercharged energy sector. So, yeah, profits have something to do with that. But And, yes, add in all the other contributing factors. The the surge in the energy prices – has a variety of different contributing components. Uh, Housing has been a big contributor to inflation in this country. So that's where the politicians of the day are really betraying us in how they talk about it because there's a lot of different factors contributing to it. And yes, some of it is more money chasing fewer goods. That's absolutely true. But we just fall for the the, the convenient uh, political hashtags, you know, just inflation and stuff, when it's more to it than that. And that's why we're not getting anywhere or we're getting nowhere in a hurry because we're just talking about it through politics versus exactly what's actually happening in the economy. 
And that's true enough, uh, Patty, you're right. It's like they're spinning their wheels and they're not getting over. But this inflation thing now, like I said, I'm going to emphasize on the rates. Uh, they keep putting up the interest rates, interest rates. All you can do, you're going to put business out of business, people in the poorhouse. Inflation is not going to come down. The, the old way of doing things is not going to work anymore. And this is where they're going to have to start, sit back, and look at what's going to happen. Because what's going to happen, if we keep going this way, we're going into not, – it's not going to be a recession. It's going to be a retraction slash depression. And uh, I, was, I was talking to a gentleman there this morning, type out, okay, the Bayvert Mines over there is closing, or one is closed so far. And the reason why they're closing is because it's due to the cost to operate. So if we keep going like what you're saying in the next 18, two years, I mean, you're not going to have no one left to service anything, and, and people are not going to be able to afford to go to work. And uh, we're, we're going to have to look at the whole nine years. And this up in interest rates, you, you, it's, it's going to be doing more harm and good. It's not going to bring down inflation. Uh, not the old style like they've done in the past. As a matter of fact, they've done it in the past, and it hasn't really worked. So I think they're going to have to really – Take a good, hard look at all this, and, and uh, I mean, I was watching on a on a news channel there recently. A, a truck driver, I think, it was out of New Brunswick. His cost has gone up. I think go this New Brunswick to Montreal, twenty seven hundred dollars just for fuel alone. So that affects the transportation industry, uh, the manufacturing industry. If taken a loss, I think into the billions, and, and, and it's going to keep going. So it's all sectors. So. I mean, we're we're on, we're heading on a bad course, and uh, the way we're going about it, or the Bank of Canada, this up in interest rates is not going to cure the problem. It's only putting people in the poor house, in the poor house, and putting people more in hard times. And if you keep going that route, then it's hard for people to rebound and rebounce and, and get back to normal. So I think we're going to have to take a good, hard look, collective look. And like you said with the politicians, you're right on the mark. Uh, you know, we, we're talking to talk, but talking and dealing with it is two different things, as you alluded to. Record consumer and, debt and interest rates yeah. shooting up. It was uh, 0.25 in January. It's 3.75. That, and that's just the benchmark rate at Bank of Canada. No one gets to borrow at that rate. So, no, right, yeah, exactly. highest consumer debt ever, interest rates climbing up. We're 10 seconds away from the end of the show. Darrell, I'll let you have the last word. Yeah, and I'll just salute to the last lady you had on your show. They're talking about regionalization municipalities. I mean, they're not going to be able to function either because everybody these costs is going up so at the end of the day we're going to have to take a look a good hard look at things and let's try to get it right and do it for the better for everybody thanks daryl okay thanks for your time patty all the best to you you too bye-bye take care right on bye. all right we are out of time but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer fonts king i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye